Hi, Mark Middleton, and that guy over there in the blue shirt, well, that is Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder, the program that shows you that it is possible to make small changes in your life that will lead to big benefits in how you live, who you are, and who you want to be. In the next hour, we will meet a noted health and wellness expert. We'll also talk with an iconic rock guitarist from one of the most influential bands ever about always living life in the shadow of his even more famous brother. Wow, that sounds incredible. Well, all also talk to a guy who used technology to create art, and a byproduct of that was changing his whole identity. And we'll talk to two people who overcame incredible obstacles and ended up living lives of purpose that they never imagined. One of them beat colon cancer, the other survived a tragic accident. Stories that'll make you feel like, folks, you can accomplish anything. And that's what we call Growing Bolder. You've picked an especially interesting time to tune in because you've heard many guests on this program talk about how important what you eat is to how well you live. Now, their diets may be different, but they all agree on shifting towards plant-based foods to avoid processed foods to combat inflammation. Yeah, but here's the deal, Bill. Every time someone like that is on, we all nod our heads up and down in agreement, but uh, most of us really don't have a clue as to how we should go about it. All of that, though, could change the moment you pick up a great new book folks, by one of the biggest leaders out there in the fight for natural and integrative medicine, a true pioneer in the field, Dr. Andrew Weil. He's put together a cookbook along with Sam Fox that can actually help start your transition to truly healthy eating. The book is called True Food, Seasonal, Sustainable, Simple, and Pure, All Good Things. Let's find out more as we welcome Dr. Andrew Weil. Hey, Doc, how are you? I'm good. Hey, you know, uh, congratulations on the new book. It is a beautiful, beautiful book uh, with a lot of great information in it. And it seems today that one of the most important ingredients in food, unfortunately, is convenience. People don't want to have to think too hard. They don't want to work too hard, or they don't want to shop too hard, do they? I agree. And, uh, you know, most people say they don't have time to cook, um, or they don't know how, or it's too hard. The recipes in this book, a lot of them are very quick and easy, simple. They don't require complicated cooking techniques, uh, and they will produce results that look as good as the photos. Now, you, Sam Fox, and Michael Stemner, you've got a number of true food restaurants across the country. You're coming up, I guess, uh, you know, on double-digit years for having those going. How are they doing now? Uh, they're great. We've got six now. Uh, we opened one in Denver two months ago. We'll be opening one in Dallas soon. And then we have plans to open others in Boston, Atlanta, Washington, D.C. You know, we, we're going to move fast. Uh, you know, and it's, it's a cool thing, Doc, that you're an M.D., uh, uh, and you're, you're actually trying to serve the kind of food that you recommend people eat. Uh, you know, why is there this disconnect? Because it seems like there is more stuff in the media channels these days, on TV, on radio like this, yeah. in your book, telling people how they should eat. But yet, uh, you know, we're exploding with this obesity epidemic. The biggest challenge that I've faced is trying to convince people that food that's delicious and food that's good for you can be one and the same. Most people think that eating healthy means giving up everything you like, and that's absolutely not true. Um, this, these recipes are based on my anti-inflammatory diet, which is a variation of the Mediterranean diet. It's very satisfying. Uh, people eat in our restaurants four times, five times a week because they like it so much and feel so good after. And the first step is really getting away from refined, processed, and manufactured food. Yeah, is intimidation part of it too, though? I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's tough enough just to figure out, you know, five or seven meals to prepare a week for your family. Now you're, you're buying ingredients that you didn't grow up with, that, that you're not really used to, and that seem to be pretty expensive. But, you know, it's, it is not complicated. And uh, we also, you know, we de-emphasize meat, and once you do that, you're saving a lot of money. Um, you know, a lot of the ingredients that we use, whole grains, beans, are really cheap. Uh, you eat things that are in season when prices are usually lower. Um, so there are ways of doing this to make it affordable, quick, easy. Uh, you know, Doc, I've always wondered about this. You just mentioned uh, the refined, the processed, and the manufactured foods. I is there some truth or a great deal of truth uh, to, to the fact that, that th there is something addictive about those uh, so that we are going to feel bad when we stop eating them at first, but ultimately, eventually, we will get to the state that you've mentioned? 
You know, I would say I think that the, the people behind this food have invested a lot of time, money, and energy into figuring out uh, combinations of tastes and textures that appeal to basic things that are hardwired into us, that basic crunch, fat, salt. You know, because whenever you plunk this stuff down in any country, even if there's great, terrific local food available, people go for, go for it and then start eating it. I think once you taste real food, however, your taste for that develops very quickly. You know, some people listening right off the bat might say, well, forget it. I can't give up my red meat, so I'm not going to buy Dr. Weil's book. But yet you use red meat. In fact, bison uh, you, you kind of like. We do, and I think one of the things that's made our restaurants work so well is that there's something there for everyone. We have vegetarian dishes, vegan dishes. We have dishes with meat. We have a lot of fish dishes, poultry, um, gluten-free dishes. So mixed groups can go in, and everyone can get something they like. You know, there's a lot of great, interesting, exotic spices out there as well, and, and you like to rely on those in some of your recipes, don't you? I do. For instance, uh, ginger and turmeric are two of the most potent natural anti-inflammatory agents known. And uh, so you'll find turmeric in a number of our recipes. That's the yellow spice that makes curry powder yellow and American mustard yellow. Uh, we don't have much um, familiarity with that in our culture, so we want to show people how to use it more. And of the recipes in the book, if you could recommend one to uh, kind of entice us to want more, wh- which is your favorite? Well, there's a curried cauliflower soup that is really quick and easy to make. It happens to be vegan. It uses cashew milk in it. It's rich. It's, you can eat it hot or cold. It's just terrific. There's also a raw kale salad, which is one of our signature dishes. You won't believe how good it is. And it's, uh, you know, it's a recipe from Italy. The kale sits for 10 or 15 minutes in a dressing with lemon juice, olive oil, and salt, which takes the bitterness out of the kale and softens it. It's just wonderful. Yeah, the book, folks, is a whole lot of fun. It's called True Food. It's uh, written by Dr. Andrew Weil, who is our guest today. Uh, And, Doc, as much fun as the book is, you know, there's some really underlying important stuff in this. And and you touched earlier in the interview on one of those, and that's chronic inflammation. We hear so much about that these days. What is that, and and what are the uh, long-term, you know, health problems with that? We all know inflammation on the surface of the body. It's local redness, heat, swelling, and pain. And actually, that's the cornerstone of the body's healing response. It's how we get more nourishment and immune activity to an area that needs it. But inflammation is so powerful and so potentially destructive that it's very important that it stays where it's supposed to stay and end when it's supposed to end. If it doesn't, if it serves no purpose, it becomes productive of disease. And chronic, low-level, imperceptible inflammation throughout the body is the root cause of all of the serious chronic diseases that do us in prematurely, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, even cancer. So doing anything you can to keep inflammation in check is your best shot at optimum health and longevity. The mainstream North American diet is strongly pro-inflammatory. It gives us the wrong kinds of fats, the wrong kinds of carbs, not enough of the protective elements that are mostly in fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices. So the point of this way of eating is to contain inappropriate inflammation. And it happens to be a way of eating that also can be extremely satisfying and pleasurable. Quick follow-up on that. Where where does sugar fall into all of this? I mean, there are people that are saying sugar is the root cause of of many cancers. Uh, Is that true? And what kind of sweet... I'm afraid the new research on sugar is very disturbing. And it, it, it really looks as if what we should be doing is trying to reduce overall consumption of sugar. Uh, I'd say the best place to start is with sweetened beverages. If we could cut out sweet liquids and make them disappear, that would be an enormous advance. You know, when you first came into the public eye, Doc, you know, you were one of the lone voices that that was shouting all this, and everyone's kind of looking at you with a crooked eye. Now the rest rest of us have kind of caught up to you. Uh, Where do you want to take us from here? What's the next step? Well, I think we're in uh, serious nutritional trouble in our country. You know, the obesity epidemic, especially in kids, and the type 2 diabetes epidemic that, that's following it, this is, these are big flashing red lights. We've got to change our ways. And a big problem is that we've made the unhealthiest food cheapest and most available, and people eat what's cheap and what's available. So we really have to, we have to work at all levels to uh, teach people the basic principles of healthy eating, uh, to get people away from refined, processed, and manufactured food, and to make uh, high-quality real food more available and more affordable. 
Now, folks, you know why he's considered America's guru of natural health, looking to help us all extend the quality of our lives by thinking about what we eat. Check out the new cookbook, True Food, Seasonal, Sustainable, Simple and Pure. Great talk with the always interesting Dr. Andrew Weil. Up next, how a middle-aged guy totally changed his life and his image by using his iPhone and a laptop. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder Radio with Mark and Bill. Did you ever feel in life like sometimes you just don't quite fit in, like nobody really understands you, like life is going one way and there you are going another? Well, here's a story about a guy who struggled to really communicate with people. Yeah, he definitely shied away from people, but instead he turned to his computer and his smartphone. He'd take photos and then he'd manipulate them, he'd recreate them, he'd reimagine them using an assortment of shapes and colors. And folks, you got to see these images because they are stunning. The point of the story, though, is that these tools of technology ended up earning him respect, appreciation, and an entirely new way to express himself. What do you see when you look at this photo? A door, right? Well, to Ed Feldman, it's an explosion of shape and color and texture. Ed has always seen the world in a slightly different way. It's why for most of his life, he's felt just a bit out of place, unable to truly express himself until he discovered something that we all have right at our fingertips. Our phones and our computers. Ed found digital art. This one's like what I was just playing with. Those are the blades of grass. And I took those. You can see the details in these blades. They already had that purple vibrance in them. So it was already there. And I played with it and ended up with this. Now all the things that only he could see, he takes a picture with his phone and his inner vision does the rest. That was like a carousel horse. And then I modified it, pulling it back to my phone and back in the Photoshop. And I went from a single horse to... um, a circle game. And saw the moon over Jeremiah's. And I thought, hmm, I should do something with that. And I ended up with this. But there's more to it. Just like in Ed's view, the closer you look, the more fascinating things become. You know, it's amazing. I'm looking at the computer, but my hand's going like this on the brush, as opposed to on the mouse, although I use the mouse, I need that fine-tuning. And I also have this magic trackpad, which is kind of cool. I feel like Star Trekian. I go, and the computer goes like, wow, and it's kind of cool. You know? And then I have my tablet, I go like this. And initially, it felt like an ice skating ring, and now I could go like real fine-tuning and look at the screen and like the detail I could just do, and I'll brush stroke all the details. Thousands and thousands of shapes fill the images he creates, and layer after layer of textures fill those shapes. Together, they reveal a hidden mosaic everywhere you look. The rest of us bluster past, Ed, and you stop and you look and you go, wow, there's art. It's everywhere. I mean, the butterflies, I mean, look at the detail. Then I made more butterfly into the butterfly. That was a train. Look, the train passed, but I still had the train. And I still made it look like the motion. Palm trees, God, I love palm trees. And I take a lot of pictures of palm trees. I'm going to have a whole series of those because they're just fun. 
and you know, you can be real colorful and it's beyond Floridian. It's, uh, you can see the life coming through it. The colors he adds to these photos pale when compared to the color art has added to his life. He's become somebody. Friends and even strangers want to talk to him about it. It went so far that his co-workers even convinced him to do the unthinkable and give up his toupee, something he'd been hiding behind for decades. They said, take off the hairpiece. I said, oh, well, okay, I'll take off the hairpiece. It was a little uncomfortable at first. It was sort of like my security blanket. For about a month, I wore a hat. And I thought, okay, I'll just keep that. And I would take my clothes off and make sure the hat stayed on so they didn't see me, like, that I was without it. And finally, I grew more confident as my artwork started to replace my hairpiece. And they started to see me as me. And I was able to be more honest in, in talking to people because I wasn't sort of hiding behind a mask. It was then Ed realized something quite profound. All of the layers of intricate patterns and bold colors that made up his works have become a true reflection of what he feels inside. Ed has found true expression, and it's revitalized his life. I don't feel like I'm 60. I mean, really, I don't even feel like I'm 40. I'm probably still in my early 30s at that old. Um, and I'm not just saying that. I, I, I don't feel like there's an age. I just feel like I am. He feels like he is because suddenly he sees art in everything, and he's convinced there's an artist inside us all. All this is a palette. You know, if we look at our morning and how we draw our day, you know, that's the palette. If we look at how we sit and how we arrange our desk, that's our art. It might not be on our canvas. It might be the way others see us. Maybe it's our whole room, how we decorate, the pictures we choose, you know, I'm drawing this stuff using programs that other people have created. I, I couldn't draw this if there weren't millions of people coming up with ideas of how to make technology work. And, you know, everyone's interrelated. So the way somebody dresses, arranges their room, the shades they put on, their glasses they pick out, how they arrange their hair, I mean, we're all artists. We just don't realize where the art begins. And the art begins just waking up, looking in the mirror and saying, Oi, (laughs) what do I do with that? You know, and that's art. And for Ed Feldman, being able to express himself through digital art has opened his eyes and his mind to a whole new level of appreciating life. There's just so much out there that... I just want to touch. I want to, I want to be a part of it all. is a place and a thing for everybody out there, folks. Ed's artwork, which he creates with his computer and phone, have opened up the world to him, and they've given him a chance to be the person that he always knew he was. And the images that he creates really are unique. They're very different, very unusual, and you need to take a look at them. Don't forget, you can check out the video portion of that story at growingbolder.com, and when you're there, just search for Ed Feldman. Ask any carpenter or mechanic you know, and they'll tell you that they're only as good as the tools they use, and the same is true in the kitchen, because if you want to cook great, you need great stuff. And for that, we've brought in registered dietitian and nutritionist straight off the Today Show, CNN, and the Food Network. Say hi to Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Esquire magazine called it a top item that men should own. You don't need soap to clean it, and it's practically indestructible. Your guess? It's a cast iron skillet. What's old is new again and trendy. Whether you dig around in your grandmother's kitchen, shop in the finds at the flea market, or peruse the latest high-end culinary catalog, you'll find numerous cast iron selections. You know, from those the old skillets to the little tiny mini tableware servers. I mean, cast iron comes in shapes and sizes for everyone. 
I grew up in Tennessee. You know, I can remember both of my grandmothers cooking fried chicken in these huge cast iron skillets. Boy, I wish I, I still had that today. Today, I use my smaller skillet for spaghetti sauce, burgers, grilled cheese, and yes, chocolate skillet cake. Why is cast iron so popular again? One big reason. It holds heat really well. Okay, so it may not conduct heat like copper or aluminum, but it holds heat better. Take good care of it and it will outlive you and be passed on to the next generation. Plus, goes from stovetop to oven without even thinking about yeah, it. I mean, it sounds fascinating. I, I'm definitely going to put it on my list, but I've got to admit it's nowhere near the top of the list yet. <laughs> Don't you have to change the way you cook when you use cast iron? And I know you said no soap, so, I mean, how do you clean it? Oh, you, Bill, you just have to try one and you'll <laughs> love it. The only difference is when you cook, you start out at a low heat and then you gradually increase it. Why? Because remember, cast iron holds heat really well, so you may not need a high flame or high heat. Then use wood or the silicon utensils because you don't want the service to get scratched. And so when it's time for a cleanup, just forget the soap. Use very hot water with a good cleaning brush. So, in fact, my office coordinator, Marlene, she also grew up in Tennessee. She shares the recipe from her mother for both cast iron cornbread and cornbread dressing. Okay, you may call it stuffing where you grew up. You can find those on our website. And by the way, if you make dressing, make your cornbread a day ahead. It's always better to be just a tad dry. All the recipes on my Pinterest page under chocolate for that skillet cake. And she is registered dietitian and nutrition expert, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Up next, his guitar changed the sound of rock, but how his battles with his brother and his health have really helped Dave Davies start growing bolder. Launchpad to What's Next Live coming to the Villages May 30th and taped for national broadcast. Join an all-star team of aging disruptors. Longevity expert Dr. Roger Landry, Olympic gold medalist Rowdy Gaines, personal finance expert Gene Chatsky, Blue Zones founder Dan Butner, swimming icon Diana Nyad, rock and roll legend Roger McGuinn, performance coach Jim Smith Jr., aging transformer Dr. Bill Thomas, award-winning journalist Bill Schaefer, and me, Mark Middleton. Change the trajectory of your life. Tickets $35 now on sale at thesharon.com. This is Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And our next guest is the man behind that driving riff you hear right there. He's one of the most unpredictable and original forces in rock. I'm telling you, his guitar is so distinctive that you can trace the beginnings of heavy metal and even punk right back to this guy. You know, true confessions, Bill, you really got me in All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix, my two favorite songs of all, all time. time. Yeah, man, I love them every time I hear them. This guy is the founding member of the Kinks, folks, if you haven't figured that out by now. Along with his brother, Ray, he created classics like You Really Got Me, Tired of What Waiting for you, Lola, and come dancing. You might not know that he suffered a serious stroke back in 2004, but since that time, he has roared back with a fascinating autobiographical film that's called Mystical Journey and some must-hear solo records, including the brand-new CD, I Will Be Me. Let's say hello to the amazing Dave Davies. Hey, Dave. Hi, man. Man, we are... (laughs) Yeah, well, that sounds pretty good, huh? Thanks, mate. That's good. One job. Hey, uh, you, you know what? Every band, I don't think you realized it back then. You know, now we all talk about our personal brands. Back then in the day, in the 60s, everybody uh, was a little bit different. What was the Kinks brand as opposed to the Beatles or the Birds or the Stones? What made you guys different? Well, I, th- I don't know, really. I think the, the fact is that the main thing was that we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> and I think that I think that the Beatles are much more, um, you know, sharper PR team behind them, and uh, even the Stones did. I mean, the Stones when they first toured America had nice short hair, so that they wouldn't upset people too much. But we were a lot scruffier and a bit more rough and ready, I think, and it sort of set us apart. Apart from the music, was very much raw. 
you know, obviously that you already got them was really raw, and we wanted to keep it very much like that. And part of the reason, Dave, that we're such big fans of yours is because you are still at it. You're as prolific as you've ever been. Did you ever think that life would be this way for you at the age of 65 now? Well, um, to be honest, we only thought, I thought it would only last a, a year or something. So I thought, we'll make hay while the sun shines. But it was like in... When it got to like nineteen seventies, it started to re- started to realize it was a uh, a vocation, you know, a job. But I didn't think it would last at all. But I'm glad it did. <laughs> and so are we. You, a lot of music there over the years. You made a lot of hay, and the sun is still shining, despite <laughs> the fact uh, that that you did have a serious stroke, Dave. What was that like? And and and. How is it that it wasn't enough to knock you onto the couch and keep you there? How did you overcome something like that? Well, it was a bit of a surprise because, um, and it's really strange because I was promoting a new album at the time called Bug. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story of it, but Bug is uh, a story about a guy who's got a bug in his brain. Oh, man. So it was kind of a bit weird, and I, um, like an implant in the brain. And, um, yeah, I was doing a radio show, show at the BBC in London, and all of a sudden I collapsed and, to a heap on the floor. And it wasn't, although it was only a minor stroke, anything to do with the brain is pretty debilitating. So... But luckily, I had good therapy and good rehab after some weeks. And um, I used to take my guitar to bed with me. Because so, mu- your muscles retain memory, so you have to keep touching guitars and uh, singing and just reminding the brain and the muscles that you, you, know, you still do it. And did, so, did... you know, it was a long way back, but it was... It was good, you know. I learned an awful lot about um, everything, really, about people, about myself, and about you know some of the people that, that were in rehab with me were in terrible shape, but they were all very positive and optimistic. And you got to be positive because otherwise, you know, there's no other way but but up. <laughs> You know, Dave, I have to say this. This is our first time getting getting to chat with you, but by all accounts, everybody in the business says what a great person you are. Everybody's quick to talk about how you really don't have that driving ego. You're just a guy who loves what he does and wants to share his music. And I don't want to throw Ray under the bus, but, you know, they say, well, he's not like his brother Ray at all. Uh, how how you know, are... Ray's Ray, and um, um, I've never been a, a person to really jumping the, the ego thing, it's just a waste of time from my point of view because, you know, I want to get on and do stuff. And sometimes you do the best stuff when you get out of your own way. <laughs> you know, so it's just I think people are different and do things in a different way. Folks, we're talking to uh, Dave Davies, who is a founding member of the Kinks, uh, the driving force behind such uh, songs as You Really Got Me uh, and and Lola. I'd love to play you some stuff off the new album, but I think the record company would be a bit Miffed. <laughs> well, you you know what? Bill is a, is a huge Kinks fan, and he has been searching online to find a little bit of that so that we could play it, but he found the same thing, that uh, it's kind of been embargoed <laughs> for now, so we'll just wait to look forward to it. Uh, uh, you, you know, tell us a little bit about this, because you're a very introspective person, but there are many interesting things about your life. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about what you call the five intelligences. Uh, you're kind of a mystical kind of guy, aren't you? Well, yeah, I think that... Um you know, I think we grew up in a very psychic family, and my mum used to read tea leaves, and and it was very common, you know, to, psychic stuff was quite common growing up. But I became interested in astrology first, when my first son was, was born, and then that really opened the doors to everything else, you know, yoga, especially yoga 
and astrology and the tarot, I thought, were amazing tools for finding out what's going on in people's minds. And I've always, always been interested in people's behavior. Why do people do what they do? And where does it come from? And why? And all these questions. And so I embarked on a, you know, behind the scenes, I was researching and uh, going to see mystics and doing yoga, and I took up all kinds of things. But, you know, it's um, all is not as it seems, you know. I was always looking for the, the, those things behind the obvious. So, Dave, would you say that you're in a pretty good place now at the age of 65 and still making music and still being you? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, music is it's really an important aspect of mystical stuff as well, because, you know, you can only talk about mystical things so far, then. but like having an art as well, you can pull your energies and your mystical ideas in the arts, whether it's painting or music. And music and rock and roll is a great vehicle for getting across ideas and different energy and stuff, you know. And the songs on the album are quite mixed. The songs are about um, how I started with a little green amp and how I got that sound. And there are songs that are about mystical things and about technology and about all sorts of things. You know, Dave, so you're I'm very excited about the the album. Dave, you're a fascinating guy, and we want to thank you for being willing to talk about your experiences because there is so much that all of us can learn from our impressions of what it must have been like to be part of the kinks in, in, in the glory days and, and to go through the ups and downs that you have had to face in life. And I hope that everybody checks out your solo music because it's fantastic. The, oh, the, I hope so, too. The, the record coming out soon is called I Will Be Me from Dave Davies. There's a, a, a documentary about him out that, that's just fascinating. So reconnect with a true driving force in rock, Dave Dave Davies is the guy. Fascinating conversation with a very open and interesting person. Thanks, Dave. Up next, she was one of the top sprinters in the country, a collegiate All-American. But wait till you hear how her whole life changed when a freak accident severed her leg. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. This is Growing Boulder Radio. Bill and Mark with you. You know, you hear a lot about how important it is to set some goals and do what you can to go get them. But there are many cases where achieving the specific goal really isn't as important as setting you on a journey down that road because you don't always know where you'll end up. Regardless, though, you'll be a lot further than if you don't try at all. Yeah, that's a great uh, point, Bill. And we're going to talk to someone now who is a great inspiration and really a great example of what happens when you do modify or change your goals along the way. She was one of the top collegiate track stars in the country. She ran the 400 meters as fast as anybody out there. But in an instant, a fluke, tragic accident ended her lifelong dream just like that. It's an incredible story. So let's let April home. Tell it. Hi, April. How are you? How you doing? Good morning. Glad to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And let's let's go back to to, to the time. Let's go back to the day. Two thousand and one. You had won multiple NCAA All American honors. Uh, you were a sprinter with a a glorious future. What happened next? Almost unthinkable. Tell us about it. In January of two thousand one, I'd gotten in a, involved in a train accident. I uh, woke up from a train accident and learned that my leg was amputated. 
and I was lost. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to turn to. I didn't know who to ask questions of. All I knew was I was on a different path in life than I would ever have imagined being on. My career, track and field career, had been over probably about five years, and I was working at a communications company uh, in Philadelphia, and I had also uh, just started working on a master's degree. So to wake up one day and have your leg and then go to bed one night and, you know, your leg be missing was pretty devastating. How, and how, my initial thoughts when I learned that my leg was amputated was that I would never be able to run or play basketball again because they were two things I absolutely enjoyed doing. How do you get involved in a train accident? Were you trying to hop a freight train? Were you riding on a subway? <laughs> what happened? I was actually in uh, Philadelphia in 30th Street Station, and my boyfriend and I were headed to New York. And I happened to be the last person to attempt to get on the train. And as I was getting on the train, the train was already delayed, and uh, my boyfriend and I were moving slow, getting on the train, I guess, and having to be the last people to get on the train. He got on, I tried to get on, and as I got ready to get on, I ended up slipping and falling and landing underneath of the platform with the train actually on my leg. So they tried, you know, for a long time to actually free me from the train or lift, kind of lift the train up. And, you know, I just laid there and I, and I prayed and I sang every church song that I knew and I, you know, just ran through life in my brain. And, I, you know, I, I just kept saying to myself, you know, life can't end like this. Um, and as I laid there and you know, I talked to the paramedic lady some or whatever and sang and kept talking to myself and sang and talked to the paramedic lady. And one of the times I remember laying there, I, I said to her, because um, they kind of tried to lift the train up via like a, a train jack, I guess, which would be similar to a car jack. And they couldn't get, they couldn't lift the train up. And so I said to to the uh, paramedic woman, I said, you know, can you just tell them to, to start the train up and back it back off my leg like they rode it on my leg? And she, she, you know, she delivered my message, whatever. And I know they were sitting there like, this girl is stuck underneath the train and she's giving us orders about what to do. Um, so it's pretty it was pretty interesting, but I knew I had to. I knew I had to keep my mind occupied if I wanted to stay alive. Um, and I think they said it took like 17 minutes or so to free me from the train. I woke up um, several hours later in the hospital, and I just remember a guy saying to me, "I'm going to take you to your room, and your family is waiting." And once I got there, I kind of asked my family, "You know, what happened to my leg?" And at first, they were like, "You know, you'll be okay." And my cousin was at my bedside, and so was my mom and her boyfriend. They're like, "You're going to be okay." I'm like, okay, nobody answered me about my leg. Hold on, let me let me ask this question again. Because I had a neck brace on because they weren't sure, um, you know, if I had any uh, injuries or whatever to my spine or whatever. And I asked her again, and she they said the same thing. And so I ended up just look, lifting up my head and looking down at my leg. And I said to my cousin, I said, you mean to tell me I'm never going to be able to run or play basketball again? And she said, you'll be okay. And, you know, next morning was just as sunny as it could be in Philadelphia, even though it was the middle of the winter and, before long, the doctor that did my emergency surgery, he came in and bought me magazines about the Paralympics, and um, I guess the rest is history, hard work and history. So he brought you information about the Paralympics while you're still in the hospital for the incident. I, you know, April, I think one of the most remarkable parts of your story is how were you not bitter, broken, and too depressed to care about anything? You know, I, I realized that God kept me alive for a reason. Um, and, you know, I could be bitter for the rest of my life if I wanted to, but that wasn't going to make life any easier, and that definitely wouldn't make life any funner. Um, and so I just decided the next morning when I woke up, I said, you know what, you're still alive, and God kept you alive for a reason. If he wants you to be, you know, still, then you would be dead um, or, you know, have those type of injuries where you would have to be still for the rest of your life. And when the doctor gave me the magazines, I was kind of confused because, I, like I said, I didn't know anyone that was an amputee. I didn't know anything about the Paralympics, none of that. So we're about a week or two weeks removed um, from a train accident, and he came in one day, and he said, here, I got some magazines for you. Wow. And I'm like, okay, Dr. Long. So I took the magazines and chucked them on top of my dresser. <laughs> and my sisters came in a little while later and kind of looked through the magazines, and they were like, did you even look at these magazines? I'm like, no, I was too busy doing whatever. And I was like, Dr. Long, crazy anyway. I was like, he's a funny guy. And so they were like, these, this, you know, on these pages are people running. And I said, give me that magazine. <laughs> So it's kind of started flipping through, and as I, I flipped through, I saw the women that had, or the, the athletes that had participated in the Sydney, uh, the 2000 Sydney Paralympic Games. And from looking at those magazines and beginning to learn about prosthetics, I'm like, that's what I want to do. You know, I, I set three goals laying in that hospital bed, and that was I wanted to represent the United States at the next Games. Um, I wanted to be the fastest in the world, and I wanted to win multiple gold medals. And so... From two weeks out, from missing my leg, you know, I, and laying in the hospital bed, I set those dreams, and they came true for me. Every one of them. 
everyone else. You got them all. Wow. So, so, so you said God kept <laughs> God kept you alive for a reason. How long did it take you to discover that reason, and, and what is the reason, April? Um, I, I still don't know, to be honest with you. I believe I believe everyone has a purpose on this earth. Um, and I, I, I say that God kept me alive for a reason because that very instant, and in many instances in my life, He could have taken me out of here. Um, if if my purpose had been served, He could have called me home. And he hasn't yet, so I, I don't believe my purpose has been served, but I do believe that that I try to do the best that I can with what I have. And and as an athlete, you know, you have you have so many opportunities to make an influence, um, both positive and negative. Whatever type of influence you would like to make, you have so many opportunities because your your reach goes so far. Um, and so I've just tried to you know encourage people to to overcome things. You know, that's kind of like my my mantra in life: learn how to overcome. Um, because if you learn how to overcome each situation that you're in, um, then uh, I guess more fruitful your life will be. And is that what the April Holmes Foundation is all about? I started the April Holmes Foundation in 2002, and one of the reasons I started it was because once I started going to rehab or whatever to learn how to walk, the woman that did that uh, was my therapist or whatever, she told me that there was a support group. And I said to her, you know, I said, I'm, I don't really need a support group. You know, I just, I'm, you know, I'm fine. I, I just need to learn how to walk and keep on moving. And, and I'm not the type of person to sit around and cry about missing my legs, so to speak. Um, and so she said, you know, I, I, and I, and I, one of the things I said to her, I said, even in my hospital room, when I lost my leg, I told people all the time, you know, when you come through these doors, we're going to laugh and joke and have a good time. We're not going to sit around and cry about missing my leg. That's just not who I am. Well, April, I've got to say, your story isn't just inspiring to amputees. It's a story that connects with any of us who've had to face any kind of obstacle, which is pretty much everybody. And for more information or to help April make a difference, check out aprilholmes.com. She is an athlete and a human being extraordinaire. April Holmes, thanks for sharing your story. Up next, what it was that made a 70-year-old climb on his bike and ride thousands of miles all across North America. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. You are listening to Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy over there is Bill Schaefer waving at you. Thanks to this program, we get a lot of great feedback. And hearing story after story of people who have given their lives a purpose is very motivating. And one of the questions that we're asked most often is, what can I do? How can I make a difference? Well, the answer is right there in your own life. It's different for everybody. And we're about to meet yet another remarkable man whose personal experiences sent him down one very long and unusual path. Yeah, and you know what started it all for him? Something that, well, maybe it touched you too. Do you remember the book Tuesdays with Maury? Mm-hmm. Well, that started him thinking that, you know, there must be some way he could use his passions and ability to help people in need. But even he never dreamed it would go as far as it did. It's a great story, and let's hear it now from Bob Lee. Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm doing great this morning. Thank you. You know, Bob, millions of people read that book, Tuesdays with Maury. What was it about it that that touched you even more deeply? Well, um, I think it touched me at the right time in life. There's a saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will come, and Maury was the teacher, and he came into my life at the right time. Uh, there's another book, Halftime, by Bob Buford, and it's uh, what do we do with the second half of our life? And Maury Schwartz was saying, pay back, give back, get involved, uh, you know, and diversify your life from work, family, uh, and charity. And so that, you know, reached out to me and meant a, a great deal, and uh, it did change my life. 
Uh, it, it changed your life, and now you're trying to change others. So, I mean, let's tell folks what you did. You saddled up. You got on your bicycle, and, and son of a gun, you've been riding uh, pretty much ever since for three reasons, which is kind of the name of your campaign. Tell us what those reasons are, and tell us about the ride. Well, the ride started in 2001, and I rode from San Diego to St. Augustine, Florida, 3,200 miles, $86,000. It was a solo ride. Then uh, in 2007, I went from Jacksonville, Florida, up to Bar Harbor, Maine, flew out to Seattle and rode back to Maine. That was 6,500 miles. I was 65 at that time, and there was a, a lot of celebrations of 65. Uh, we raised $390,000, and again, that was a solo ride. Wow. And this last ride, I took off uh, this past September in Vancouver and rode down to Mexico. That was 2,000 miles, and to date, I uh, have raised $875,000 with a goal of reaching a million dollars. It gets divided three ways between cancer research, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease research, which Maurice Schwartz died from, and that's what who introduced me to the disease, and then uh, and hospice, and it's uh, developing end of life care plans for all of us so we can die in peace. Now tell us why why I understand Maury was the inspiration for ALS, but why colon cancer and why hospice? Well, it's not uh, the cancer research is general for cancer. It goes to American Cancer Society, and they do some wonderful research. They have uh, do a lot of uh, early on research and have created Nobel Prize winners, uh, about 46 of them so far. So it's I am a colon cancer survivor. And as I look at life, someone did a walk, a run, a gala, made a contribution so I could be a survivor. My wife's a breast cancer survivor. So um, I think all of us that not only go through something like this, but there is an opportunity to pay back and say thank you. And my goal is to create more birthdays for more people uh, through good research in cancer, um, you know, to find cures for ALS. Here's a disease that's been going on for years and years, and we don't know how to stop it, you know. It's a terminal illness, a cruel, cruel one to watch Maury Schwartz on uh, Nightline. I saw that interview with Ted Popple, and I, again, it changed my life. Wow. You know, hard to call, uh, you know, riding uh, thousands and thousands of miles, literally circumnavigating uh, uh, the U.S. on a bicycle, a retirement. But, but technically, you are retired. Did you ever imagine that you would be doing what you're doing and, and having the impact that you are uh, while you're in your 70s? Uh, not really. I did have a bucket list when I originally retired. I still do work. I have uh, my own business, but... Um, you know, I think the key is in life is staying active, staying passionate about things and uh, reaching out and uh, meeting and dealing with different people. So something like this has created an opportunity for me to meet wonderful, wonderful people with great arts. This has been an entirely volunteer organization. So to go raise 890000 or 875,000 right now. Uh, I have met some wonderful people and had some amazing help. And the more we can associate with different people of different generations is, uh, keeps, keeps us younger. And how, um, how hard is it, Bob, what you did? I mean, you know, you throw out, well, my one ride was 3,000 miles, one was 6,000. What could we compare that to? Are you some kind of super athlete or, or a regular guy with a mission? No, I'm a raised... I'm a regular guy with a mission. Uh, people think of me as a cyclist, and I'm really not. I'm a peddler. And what gives me the pedal power uh, to get up over the Rockies a couple of times and up and down the West Coast is thinking about those people who can't. And there's a lot of people who can't. There's a lot of people going through chemo and radiation. There's a lot of people at end of life that wish they could. There's ALS patients every 90 minutes. Someone's being diagnosed with ALS. They're not going to be able to do what I can do. Wow. So I feel fortunate to be able to do this. And by doing it, I think I probably extend my life. 
expectancy. I think we need to get up every day with passion and a purpose and make life more enjoyable. Amen, folks. His name is Bob Lee, and Bob, as Bill talked about, what we like about you is, uh, as Bill noted, you are just a regular dude. You didn't come on here. You're not hyping a book. You're not hyping a television program. You are hyping a message, and the message is one that we think everybody needs to hear. We all can make a difference. We all should get up every day with a desire to help others and to leave an impact. And, Bob, we appreciate that. It always amazes me how fast this hour flies by, especially when you're talking about ways to put the spark back in your life. I mean, this is a program that's all about hope and inspiration and and possibility because opportunities do surround us no matter what your circumstances are. There are changes all of us can make to lead a more rich, vibrant, and fulfilling life. And, you know, Bill, as excited as we get, I think we all need to be re-motivated time and time again. I know the show certainly motivates me. And, And, folks, the fun doesn't stop here. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from more people who are not just talking the talk. These are people that are living their lives in a way that defies conventional wisdom. Be sure to check out our GrowingBolder.com Facebook page. Click like, and you'll see what a difference Growing Boulder can actually make in your life. And don't forget Growing Boulder TV, because you know, sometimes in life, we all need that little boost Mark was talking about to help us take that first step down the road we've always wanted to go. So don't wait any longer. Start Growing Boulder, and we'll see you right back here next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Stay.